The following is a paid program and does not necessarily reflect the opinions of the staff or management of Visionary-related entertainment. Aloha, folks. You've tuned in to the three-year anniversary show of The Solar Coaster, Hawaii's voice of renewable energies. It's been a wonderful adventure bringing this show to Maui County and the Big Island Coast over these last 156 hour-long episodes. We've explored content from thought leaders, policymakers, inventors, and friends across the largest trade shows in the world in Anaheim, San Francisco, Vegas, Salt Lake City, and visited energy-related megasites, learning from experts like the Eater Tokamak Fusion Reactor in France, the Pulse Reed Sonin's virtual power plant town in southern Germany, as well as getting boots on the ground for our microgrid series in Cuddyhunk Island, Massachusetts, and right here at home in Molokai. A complete archive of our shows can be found at solar-coaster.com. An extensive video archive is available on YouTube, as well as today's show, which was our first Zoom recording. Solar Power Events out of Washington, D.C. asked us to moderate a discussion on the impacts of the COVID crisis on the solar plus storage industry. We brought a bunch of experts together and did this live webinar with 300 plus industry professional registrants. We'd like to extend a special thanks to all our sponsors throughout the years today. Sonin, Tabuchi Electric, EnduroShield, Perfectly Clear Glass, Sundrum Solar, LG Chem, Pantech Design, and of course, Fairwinds Wealth Management. We couldn't have done it without you. Mahalos. Three years is a long time to do anything, and it's natural to look behind and examine all our accomplishments. But we should not neglect continuing to look forward to our shared future. That is, after all, what the solar coaster is all about. The world is changing, of that there is no doubt. This is normal. However, our need for energy, our desire to improve ourselves, and our hope to pass on a better Earth to future generations has not. Rest assured, we will continue to research the technologies, converse with the people, and spur the conversations that will help shape our new energy future. We're all in this together, and we welcome you to continue to ride the solar coaster with us. For today, we are really looking forward to hearing from Lior Handelsman, long friend and contributor, longtime friend and contributor to the Solar Coaster, as well as Brian Warshe, a new friend from DNVGL. Um, hi, gentlemen. Welcome to the show. We're really excited to get going. All righty. So we're going to dig right into the big question. How is the solar plus storage industry faring around the world and the country, uh, U.S. specifically, in, under the COVID-19 crisis? So we're going to touch a bit on resi, commercial utility. Uh, do please get those questions in as we progress. Jason's going to be watching them closely. And we should have about 15 minutes to tackle a few of them towards the latter half of the show. Let's start off with Brian Warshe of DNVGL. Aloha, Brian. How you doing, sir? Aloha. I'm doing well. How are you? Fantastic. Brian, you're from DNVGL. Uh, I'm really excited to hear about your organization. Uh, you're calling out of Brooklyn, is that right? Or no, I'm sorry, you're Rochester. How many times did I say that to you already? <laughs> That's all right. Rochester, New York. Fantastic. So, Brian, why don't you uh, get us going in this discussion? Tell us a little bit about DNVGL yourself. And, yeah, just set the stage for us. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for having, uh, for having me. Um, I'm a consultant at DNVGL. We provide engineering due diligence um, across a range of renewable assets and as well as energy storage. Um, I sit on the energy storage team. So we see a lot of projects coming in both on the large scale and small scale. We evaluate these projects from an engineering perspective, often to provide lenders with a sense of understanding and a sense of the risks associated with these projects. Um, so from our perspective, what we've seen kind of, we've been thinking about in our daily lives, like the pre-COVID lifetime, life, life, and post, and and we can kind of think about applying that um, to the world of solar and energy storage. But we break the world down into large-scale utility projects that are front of meter, sometimes or most of the time have some sort of merchant or wholesale market exposure, um, and then. Uh, behind the meter, small-scale solar and energy storage, where um, rooftop solar panels are connected to a battery storage system um, at a customer site in a building um, adjacent to a commercial or industrial building. Um, what, the way we're seeing the market on the on the large-scale side is, from a fundamentals perspective of the market, in that in that way, not a whole lot has changed, and we don't expect a whole lot to change. We we've still seen a lot of projects that we work on, and. And these projects take two, three, four years to come to fruition. Uh, many of those projects are continuing to move forward 
at the same pace. And in fact, we've actually seen a couple of new projects come in. And I think the reason is the fundamentals of the market have remained pretty much the same. There's no states have been canceling their RPS, their renewable portfolio goals as a result of COVID. Um, customers still want clean, cheap, reliable electricity and energy. Um, electric vehicle sales, while they're probably slowing down in this immediate time frame, are probably expected to pick back up, maybe with some lag. Um, and as a result of that, there's going to be an increased and continued increased demand for electricity and, and even further an increase, continued increased demand for clean electricity. And with clean electricity often creates an opportunity for energy storage to create value. At the wholesale level, the increased penetration of intermittent renewables, specifically wind and solar, tend to create increased volatility in market prices, especially in the wholesale markets parts of the U.S. where um, it's, um, the, the electricity system is run um, by a third-party market operator and not a vertically integrated utility. Um, in fact, LBNL, the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, did a study on high penetration wind and solar grids tend to have significantly higher volatility in their prices. Energy storage in wholesale markets tends to make money on this volatility. And so in theory for energy storage, that's a good thing. Um, another fundamental driver at the wholesale, the kind of high level system level, especially in the U.S., is that the peakiness of the system load is increasing. And the way we think about peakiness is load factor or the ratio of average energy demand to, to peak demand. So a low load factor tends to have a spiky profile and it's these spiky profiles that storage can provide a ton of value due to storage's ability to quickly turn on and provide short duration amounts of electricity you know, typically thinking about it from 30 minutes to two or three hours, which is storage's uh, technical sweet spot. And in the U.S., the peakiness of the grid measured by load factor has actually decreased from 47% in the early 2000s to about 30% today. And that means it's gotten almost twice as peaky um, as measured by that metric um, over the last 20 years. Now, on the small scale side, which I know Lior is going to touch, touch a lot on, we see similar same fundamentals. Uh, customers want cheap, clean, reliable electricity. They want more electricity. There's a focus on digitization, connectivity, electrification. Um, we expect the DMV does a, um, a forecast of energy demand around the world. And in the U.S., we expect that electricity as a share of energy demand is going to double between now and 2050. Over that same time period, total energy demand, which would include oil consumption from driving your, your electric vehicle and natural gas consumption for any type of process is expected to decrease. So we expect to see a nearly doubling of electricity as a share of total energy use, while total energy use goes down by about 30% by 2050. And so with that said, customers, there's increased need for electricity, which should increase the demand for solar electricity. People want cheap and clean electricity. Solar and energy storage can provide that, plus the added benefit of reliability. Um, and one thing I, I kind of we started thinking about at DMV is that as more and more people are expected to work from home, potentially even post-COVID um, or when it starts to subside, corporations will still need to meet their corporate sustainability and renewable energy goals. But if they have less of a workforce coming into the office where they can control how much electricity and energy is associated with their use, maybe a way for corporations to actually branch out and still provide that, meet their goals with a distributed workforce might take on a different face in a way that corporations could actually provide some benefits to their individuals working from home to allow them to purchase uh, clean distributed electricity. So that's one way we're thinking about how the post-COVID world, COVID world could change as far as the small-scale uh, solar and storage sector is concerned. Wow, there's a lot there. Uh, thanks so much for that, Brian. And you, you brought up a couple of points that were really interesting. I love that that tail end of the, the conversation when it sounded like a, maybe a community solar type of play or similar to Jay, we saw at InterSolar out in uh, Munich in, in Europe when they're talking about ways to, to be able to share uh, renewable energy with people in a distributed you know framework, right? So that's something I hadn't thought about, hadn't crossed my mind. There's a lot of optimism there, which I was pretty happy to get uh, from you today as well. 
Um, you know, I am thinking though about that upcoming few months, just as a quick tag, is there, what do you think is happening in the short term, in the 30, 60, 90, 120, next quarter? Uh, you know, do you have any, any vision on that? Yes, in the, in the short term, you know, we've seen certainly in the news, the small scale sector, the behind the meter sector has taken a hit. It's tough to do installations um, at people's homes with social distancing rules in place and, and certain distances. So certainly we've seen that in uh, Q1 and probably expect to see that in Q2 earnings from a lot of companies. But the, so in the near term, probably a reduction on the small scale side. On the large scale side, less of an impact. Some of those construction projects, especially in states that are starting to open up, can actually be performed with some social distancing still in place um, on, and certain construction activities would may be deemed essential. Um, also, from a supply chain perspective, there may be some slowdowns in terms of getting inventory in. Um, so that's something that hasn't fully come to fruition. As far as planning project work, like the work that we do, which is often in the planning stages, that work has actually continued and in some cases picked up in the current, um, in the near term. So we're still seeing deal flow come through. We're still seeing transactions happening. Um, it'll, it remains a little bit to be seen whether there's delays that happen as a result of physical inventory moving, moving hands and actual physical construction coming in. And I think this summer will really be the real indicator and a Q2 earning results in, in a little bit of time um, to demonstrate what, like to quantify how big that impact actually has been. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, you definitely some, some ideas there that resonated with what we're seeing uh, here in Hawaii. You know, uh, as a coincidence, we just had our, our FAR FP phase two on the utility scale uh, awards issued uh, yesterday. That's 460 megs, uh, about a 50% increase in renewables on the grid in, in the uh, Oahu, Maui, and Big Island grids uh, once they're deployed. So, you know, the utility scale is just rocking and rolling out here. It's a long time horizon kind of conversation. And uh, yeah, so there you go. All right, well, uh, thanks for that, Brian. We're gonna, I'm sure we're gonna get some great questions to you shortly. Uh, really excited to hear from uh, Lior Handelsman. Lior, aloha, how are you, sir? Aloha, how are you all? Not bad. <laughs> not, not too bad. Leo, you're calling in from Tel Aviv in Israel. Leo is one of the founders of Solar Edge Technologies, been on the solar coaster a number of times, had a lot of great shows, learned loads from you, real smart fella. So uh, what's going on in your world, Leo? So uh, indeed, uh, uh, um, COVID is uh, pretty much one of the most interesting experience I had as a manager in a global company ever. Uh, 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 you know, it, it started um, as a company that is spread all around the world. It, uh, we started by worrying about supply chain because some of our uh, uh, manufacturing or uh, raw material comes from China. And then this kind of like rippled all over the world. We have a lot of interesting perspectives on this, both on freight. You know, I didn't know before this uh, started that, there's that, that there are almost no uh, freight, air, um, uh, freight airliners anymore. It's all on passenger uh, flights. And when passenger flights stop, uh, air freight stops. Um, so a lot of adjustments, interesting adjustments. We have a unique view because we actually see um, connection rates of our systems. So we know kind of like see the plague in some countries even before uh, you see it in the news as we see the rate of installs changing. Interesting part for the US is that uh, we start to see an increase again. So it went down in some states, um, installation rate went, went really down as the shelter in, uh, in home was, uh, um, was uh, enacted in some, uh, in some states installation rate is almost the same, take Texas uh, as an example, there's almost no decline versus California where there's a big decline. Uh, um, so very interesting to track that and to see that. The, the, the optimistic part of that is that we start to see the rise again, the, 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 the rise to, I don't know what is normal, but um, nearing to rates that we are used to uh, pretty much all across the US. Outside of the US, uh, um, you would be surprised, but Europe is almost back to normal. Uh, even Italy is, uh, is nearing uh, installation levels that, uh, that uh, were before uh, this whole thing started. So there's definitely a, a, a 
at least for this wave, if I don't know if there's going to be another wave, but at least for this wave, it seems like the world is starting to come out of it. Um, the really interesting trend that we see is on how energy consumption changed. That is something that is extremely interesting because utilities plan their production and their resource allocation and their production facilities allocation based on these expected profiles. We've all seen this wagon uh, uh, curve or duck curve of all, our, uh, all these uh, curves of uh, grid behavior. That was completely disrupted. Uh, people are working from home, there is less travel, there is less uh, large-scale uh, air conditioning, there is less commercial uh, usage. That was completely disrupted. Uh, since we sell a lot of uh, these uh, type of grid services projects where a lot of storage plus uh, uh, PV systems are used to help balance the grid, we have some view on that. Uh, that would be, I think, even more than what we, uh, you expect, a major driver for PV plus storage for utilities. Because the flexibility that solar plus storage can give is, and, and the speed of reaction is so much better than firing up a gas picker or, uh, or uh, um, especially in cost. And, or, or ramping up uh, or down a coal power plant or a gas power plant, uh, which, which makes this a tool that utilities are starting to realize that they, that they need, that they must have uh, in their overall uh, resource mix. And again, exactly as Brian said, people are going to start to work from home. And when you work from home, your energy consumption shifts and it's more in, uh, in the home and in the suburbs and less in the city centers. Uh, and in the industrial zones, and again, solar plus storage in your home. And that couples really great with the fact that, and we already see it, people want resiliency. If there's any, you know, same like you read that people went to buy guns in some places, or people went to buy toilet paper in some places, people, are try, are, people want to, to have resiliency. They want to have their own electricity. They want to be able to be partially, and if uh, possible, completely off the grid in case they need it. And, and definitely this crisis has, 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 has strengthened this need all around the world. So, so we are a very, as much as you can be optimistic in the midst of a global pandemic, but uh, um, people get it. People see that a, a solar plus storage is needed. Utilities get it. It brings a lot of flexibility and resiliency into the grid and into the home. Very, very uh, uh, important. Oh, that was an interesting thing that you just said. Um, I. And was one of my personal questions is, do we see the, the general unease that has kind of swept through the world? Um, do you see an uptick in battery and storage sales um, simply because people are trying to um, basically prep for, for the apocalypse? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, people, uh, I don't think everyone is prepping for the apocalypse. But definitely, the, the, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of a, of a combination. People uh, in some places went through the fires in California and the, and the, and the, and the storms in the southeast and, 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 and now this. And, and, and yes, people want more resiliency. People want more independence. Even in places around the world where the grid is super stable. Take Europe uh, uh, as an example. There are countries in Europe where people can't remember when they had a, ba a blackout, and still there is more need for batteries and uh, resiliency. I see that someone asked in the in the in, in the chat about utilities fighting uh, net metering. So there's lots of utilities, and uh, obviously there's lots of uh, opinions. But we see and talk to more and more utilities that understand that solar plus storage, large scale, front of the meter, back of the meter, can be um, a solution and not just a problem. A lot of the reason why uh, utilities are fighting this is because they are afraid that solar will disrupt the, the grid. There are now good solutions for that, especially as storage becomes uh, uh, more, more uh, widespread. 
And NEM, NEM is basically a subsidy, and just like everything. And then, then um, my, my personal opinion, I think, is that the governments really aren't going to have a whole lot of money <laughs> to hand out by the end of this uh, for subsidies and, and programs like that. Um, I, I can't imagine that uh, it's going to stop the rollout of, of renewables and and storage attached to it because storage is really the only way it makes sense these days you need some kind of storage um to in balance um so so nem probably will go away it's not a sustainable model it's literally meant to jump start um installations get some businesses rolling and once you have those businesses functioning in 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 an area um the the that um, net metering programs can kind of go away. Um, we've also seen such a dip in storage and solar um, installation and pricing um, over the past decade that um, it, it's, it's almost not necessary anymore to have those types of, of uh, stimulus packages. Yeah, so, so, so uh, uh, solar is, is, is financially or economically viable in many places uh, around the world already, and also in many places in the U.S., that doesn't say that whenever policy changes, there is a disruption in the uh, in the in the flow of installation. There's a disruption in the industry simply because people lose something that they had, right? So some of the of the uh, economic models of some companies that uh, don't work anymore, some uh, 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 installers or companies that are selling solar uh, don't adapt fast enough to the to the new uh, uh, re reality. There's always, whenever there's a change, even if solar is financially viable after that change, whenever there's a change, there's a dip that we see. We see it all around the world. Uh, funny, the more a solar industry fights against the change, the more they make the, the fight public, the more damage the change creates. Because they kind of like uh, embed the notion in consumers' mind that we, after this change, solar is no more uh, 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 makes sense. Uh, so actually, being prepared for a change, adapting that if eventually these subsidies will go away is, is, is part of the uh, uh, life of solar. Uh, um, I think that in many places, solar is still financially viable. Of course, with some incentive, it's better than without. But uh, 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 prices are coming down, prices of storage are coming down, prices of modules are still uh, low. Uh, um, and, and that is a, 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 a that is what we have to do. We have to legitimately fight uh, a, a all other uh, um, uh, types of uh, energy, which, by the way, a lot of them get subsidies also. They just look different. These uh, subsidies. So uh, thank you for that, Lior. Um, and when I you know when I listen to you speaking, I'm thinking that you know on the residential side, maybe there's some uh, challenges right now to selling and to uh, getting through this short-term period, but there's a th this type of volatility can increase the appetite for uh, renewables, and I, I think we're going to see more and more of that. Myself, I, that's my opinion as well. And then on the utility side, it's interesting to hear you say uh, that the utilities are kind of being sold right now on the prospect and the value of like distributed uh, grid services or uh, on you know alternatives to peaker plants because of the volatility in the grid right now. That's very interesting. So you have a utility kind of case being made, you have a residential case being made and, and further emboldened. Let me ask you about the, uh, both, actually either of you, uh, about the commercial side. I was on the, on the phone with the CFO yesterday, a good friend of mine talking about the impacts to businesses uh, and you know if, if do you see any drying up of tax equity for example do you see any changes in the incentives for businesses corporations the, the, to, to adopt renewables is it just as bold as utility and resi is, is it different what, what's your take I, either of you so so, so we, we 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 are very active in the cni uh, space Commercial solar makes a lot of sense financially, but I think it's going to take a, a hit, mainly because it's not the time for businesses to increase their capex expense. A lot of businesses are planning for the future. It is still unknown what will be the level of, uh, of, uh, of business for, for everyone uh, uh, in any type of business, because there, there's probably some kind of uh, economic downturn less uh, uh, money rolling around uh, in the in the in the in the market so a lot of businesses are kind of like bracing for impact 
And when you brace for impact, you don't necessarily go ahead and make a CapEx investment, even if it makes a perfect sense on your balance sheet, right? So solar makes perfect sense. It saves you money. It, uh, uh, it improves uh, a lot of your financial metrics, leave the benefit for the economy and, uh, and the social benefit. But when bracing for impacts, I, I, I believe and I already see, I think, the, the trend of businesses to delay uh, investment in uh, commercial solar. Uh, and now the question is how, how long and how deep is going to be the, the economic downturn before we see things starting to roll back into place? Yeah, That's and kind of what I was thinking. I guess, how about you, Brian? Yeah, and I mean, I, I agree. And I think what that creates an opportunity for on the, on the CNI sector is, is these creative financing mechanisms, right? Interest rates are incredibly low. Um, there could be opportunities to w work with lenders more so, and they exist already, right? But instead of an investment, I totally agree, it would be more looked up as a, um, a reduction in, in, in OPEX if, um, if for a financed project. And I think those opportunities will continue, probably will take some time to get back to where maybe we were, where we expected to be. Certainly cert certain industries will be impacted a lot more than others. You know, I think office buildings, right, which aren't always the most prototypical solar and storage customer anyway, especially in big cities, the you know, tall high rises tend to have very small roofs. Um, whereas industry, especially certain industries might be actually increasing and have an increased energy or electricity demand these days and may continue to see that. And then that might make the opportunity to put solar and storage on even, even more viable. So, we, you know, I think it is going to be a lot of companies, I think, will be at one end or the other of the spectrum with far fewer in the middle, uh, you know, far fewer filling that typical customer um, and more like as really good customers or really bad customers or really good opportunity versus really bad opportunity, at least in the next, you know, three to six months as far as that sector is concerned. Um, and then as far as tax equity, I don't have a view necessarily on how the market looks as a whole, but what I can say is that we've seen tax equity still looking for projects recently. And so we don't think it has immediately dried up. I think the way you describe it fundamentally, that could have a longer term impact, but I wouldn't say that the market has closed off at this time. Thank you so much for bringing some color to that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense that it's industry specific. There could be some winners and losers in there uh, and that that, that tax equity issue could kind of um, have a lag to it if it does show up. Uh, you know, one, one other question, when you look at that, uh, that, 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 well, maybe we should jump over actually to a Q&A, Jay. You got, you got a bunch of questions coming in? Um, not a ton, but I did want to mention to everybody that we are um, accepting questions both in the chat and in the Q&A panel. So if you have a question, uh, certainly post that. Um, we do have two. Trent Nelson asks, uh, what is your opinion on utility, utility territory rights in the USA? And should third parties have more access to selling electricity uh, at, at retail rates? That's a, uh, I think it's a Brian question. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I don't totally understand the question. Do, can, do, um, do you guys have more clarity on charging stations? I think they're talking like a, a third party, like middleman um, for, for charging electric vehicles or something. It sounds, it sounds like kind of that model. I see more on the, dem the demand side. I, yeah. I, it sounds like the questions around regulated and deregulated markets um, in the US, um, I think about close to two thirds of customers sit in deregulated markets or markets that have a wholesale or uh, non-governmental entity operating energy transactions. And then you have generators sitting kind of on one end of the spectrum and you have load serving entities or retail suppliers and, and what we would typically call a utility sitting at the other end, um, serving loads, serving us customers. And the money tends to flow you know, it flows from customers up through the market to the generators and the electricity flows down from the generators through the market to, to the customers. In those markets, we do tend to see some more creative approaches to the way entities can price electricity to end customers, essentially what, what come out is the, the rate that you end up paying on your bill. Um, there's a lot more flexibility there. There's a lot more opportunity for some different types of risk taking. And um, we've seen a lot of creative approaches and, and expect to see a lot more creative approaches to how 
those entities that sit between the market and the customer can price and and capture the value that a, a something like solar and storage can provide. What, what's super interesting about the markets is those, those entities have, face market exposure and they close customers off from that market exposure in many cases, providing me with a flat rate. I pay the same amount for my electricity, whether I use it during the day or at night. Um, by exposing customers to more of the volatility in the market, products such as energy storage, uh, demand response, other load control technologies can actually provide more value, but that you need that entity in place to share the value that they're facing, you know, they're, they're seeing in the market with the customers. Um, and this is something that we've looked at actually recently. We're, we're releasing a report next week on, on small-scale solar and storage, so we're, we kind of address some of these issues. It's, it's very top of mind to us. Um, in the vertically integrated markets, it's not to say there's not innovation there. A lot of regulators in states that have vertically integrated utilities that own generation, transmission, distribution, and, and the customer are doing some interesting things. And it usually comes down from a top-down government approach. If there's a high renewable portfolio goal, um, if there are the regulator wants the utility to allow customers more choice and options, then you can see some creative opportunities and electric vehicle charging fits right in there. Utilities tend to really like electric vehicle charging. It's, an, it's a source of load for them. Who owns the charging stations is often contentious. What utilities can do is create rate structures that make it easier for customers to charge their electricity, uh, to charge their vehicles. And they can provide the physical infrastructure in a lot of states that gets the that makes it easier for a third party to build the infrastructure at the site. So it's usually called make ready. They'll bring the lines and they'll make it easier for that, um, that customer to interconnect, but they don't go so far as to create the actual plug that goes into the vehicle. Um, so those are some of the things that we've seen in different markets. But, um, you know, sometimes vertically integrated markets get a bad rap. That's not always the case, but, you know, they do, you know, they can move a little bit more slowly um, Utilities aren't always incentivized to do creative things. It's not necessarily their fault. It's often the way that they the, the way that they make money and the way they're regulated. Very, Very good. good. Thanks for that, Brian. Jay, what do you think? Um, yeah. Next up, we have uh, Shane O'Sullivan is asking our residential side. Um, the two to four kilowatt systems have been kind of normal. Um, I'd say it's probably more in the four four to five range, but we live in Hawaii. Um, but households with one or two EVs will push it up to like eight to 12 kilowatt systems will be the new norm. And that, I think that's that's very much a Lior system. How, how big do you think is your average residential the, system? The, the two to four number, um, I would say that's a, that's a more like a European uh, kind of number. Houses in, in the US are bigger and in some places of, uh, of the US, very bigger, and uh, uh, we see the average size being pushed already in the U.S. to around six or seven even, um, and definitely the trend is up. Uh, when when you have an EV and you want to service uh, effectively your uh, your loads around the home, we see even uh, around 20 kilowatts if that's uh, possible. Uh, but I would say that the average, in my guess, would be in, a, in, a, in two, three years, the average would be around nine to 10, and the peak would be even uh, 20 something, 25, if, if a house can uh, accommodate uh, all that uh, PV on it. Uh, the average today in the US is six to seven. Yeah, I, I mean, that could be something that changes if people are home a lot more and they're charging their electric vehicles during the middle of the day instead of on the overnight, um, if they would normally have charged at work, um, but they're charging at home. So I, yeah, I totally agree. And I think what you all were talking about before with net metering, um, if we agree that net metering may be starting to fade away in a lot of states, the bigger question for, for me, and, and I think for a lot of companies is what, what comes next, right? I think most folks agree that full retail net metering might be too much but that just compensating PV exports for the avoided cost or something equivalent to the, um, the avoided cost of energy at the wholesale level might be too low, right? And then finding that in-between number is what, where all the contention or where we've seen a lot of contention lie. But energy storage provides an, a per, the perfect way to, to manage that uncertainty because as retail net metering starts to decline, the value that storage provides a customer tends to increase. Um, so it's a very good complement technology. 
Thanks for that, Brian. You know, as we're talking here and we're, we're describing this new norm where we're at home, we're working from home, and then thinking about that in relationship to the, to the duck curve, this, this topic that we've been talking about for years, uh, and the duck curve is directly related to our movements around our community, uh, waking up, you know, using a bunch of energy and then going out of our homes and then going into the, you know, the, the business and then coming back home and then using a bunch of energy. And that, so that duck curve, is that comp, is the duck curve no more? Are we going to see some change? And is the duck curve something else? Are we going to get a new animal curve? I mean, what's going on? Oh, like a, uh, of a tortoise curve. Uh, uh, these, day, <laughs> these days with, uh, with COVID, definitely there is no duck curve. It looks completely different. Uh, I wish I, uh, I bought some, uh, some graphs that I saw, but it looks completely different. You see, but people are in home and load is in home. Uh, um, it doesn't change a lot because if it's not that uh, uh, um, widespread yet, it doesn't change a lot the head of the duck because uh, people still consume a lot of energy during the, the evening. But it definitely made a change, made an effect on the belly of the duck. Um, yeah, COVID changed a lot of things. There you go. There you go. We talked about that duck curve as if it was a eternal reality, and then something like this comes along and changes it into. Did you say tortoise curve, the turtle curve? I think you're gonna have to coin that. <laughs> in, in this session. Hey, uh, uh, Jay, on another topic, I see um, Shane uh, Sullivan again talking about bi-directional EV charging. Do we want to, uh, we have a moment to get into that? Jay? Absolutely, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so Shane, Shane O'Sullivan asked the question, he says, there's a lot of buzz about bi-directional EV chargers this year. Is this a realistic alternative to get dedicated home storage? Maybe now the question is more valid with the future of working from home and EVs parked outside. Um, what do you think about bi-directionality? I know, Lior, this is a, a you know, you, you've got the, 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 e direct, the most powerful level two EV charger in the world, which also is on my house, by the way. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so, the uh, what do you think about bi-directionality? I, I didn't mean to ask you this anyway. So technically, it's it's a great idea. You know, we 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 charge energy in our home, and now we drive to to work, and our energy comes with us, and it can service the grid while we work, and uh, uh, or we can take uh, energy from the workplace back to our, to our home. Our car will become part of the grid. Technically, it's a great idea. Um, it's not that technically complicated also to make everything in the onboard charger of the car or the, or the, or the DC charger outside of the car to make it bidirectional. And all these topologies have bidirectionally inherent to them, just a little bit of software and, uh, and, uh, and more. Uh, the barrier to this is the, are the car companies. Uh, when you buy an EV, what you need to realize is that much of the cost that you're paying is in the battery. The chassis is the chassis, and the chassis is not the most expensive part. In all of the mechanical parts that cost a lot of money, the motor, the piping, the, 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 the cooling, it's all gone. And all you have is an electric motor, which is a simple beast, and a battery, which is where a lot of the money sits. And car companies today are very afraid to allow the users to, let's call it, play around with the cycles of, uh, of the battery. They give you warranty. That warranty is, for them, a huge financial risk, basically, because they say you can drive a certain amount of mileage or you can charge your, your battery a certain amount of uh, megawatt hours in, let's say, three, five years. And if you won't be able to do that, you will come back and they will need to give you compensation or a new battery. That's a huge financial risk for them. And because of that, most car companies are uh, not allowing the user to take energy out of the battery. They, they, they simulated it for the car. They tested it a lot in different uh, driving behaviors. And they don't want the user to change the, the, the battery uh, 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 cycle uh, history. That's the reason this is now being blocked because car companies won't allow you to do it. Except we also have legislation yeah. in Hawaii that doesn't allow um, energy transfer 
across uh, TMKs property lines. Um, so, so there's there's actual legislation on the books that will not allow you to put energy in a car, uh, move the car from one property to another, and then discharge the energy. That's the purview of the utility. So, there's <laughs> <laughs> a specific Hawaii thing. Always has its quirks. Yeah, you can't charge your you can't charge your phone and then use it elsewhere. I guess Apparently, we're all in violation. <laughs> but this is, this I, I totally agree called with wheeling, PR gentlemen, wheeling out here in uh, in, in yeah, Hawaii. The, the, and, uh, yeah. I think there's some the literal definition of wheeling. We've been joking about it for years. <laughs> <laughs> we love the pun, right? So, uh, Brian, what, do you have uh, something to add to this? Uh, I, I totally agree on that. We we see battery warranties all the time for, for these large-scale projects, and they are very specific in terms of how the battery can be used. And vehicle companies are already taking that risk on because, you know, while they have control over the charge and discharge rate of the battery, they don't have control over how aggressively customers drive the car. And that can actually have a pretty significant impact on the actual degradation associated with the battery. If you then add this other layer of uncertainty, if it's not bounded to say you can pull electricity from the battery, you know, during certain times of year that are disaster times or deemed, you know, storm events or something like that, like I could see that happening sooner than like full wide open something that, you know, when we when folks talk about vehicle to grid and that fluid flow, you know, the, the idea of like the fluidic flow of energy into and out of everybody's vehicle kind of all the time. Um, I, I, I'd see more likely this emergency situation come up. And I, I did hear recently that um, Nissan Leaf is allowing some level of that with their vehicle in terms of the warranty. And that was a pretty interesting tidbit there um, to hear because, I mean, the batteries are in, in pure electric vehicles are pretty big compared to you know your typical what what we ever want to call a typical Tesla or LG battery. Yeah, so so it's interesting. I, I think it's a super um, unique opportunity to leverage an asset that might be more or less underutilized in most in many cases. Nissan is uh, is indeed a unique case where they allow the usage of a, of a battery, but uh, today still they are the. The unique case, which uh, shows, uh, which tells you about the general case, which is still not allowing anything like that. I'm sure it's going to change over time. As batteries become cheaper and as batteries become uh, more able to to do more uh, cycles, uh, car, and also car companies are going to see that uh, the risk is uh, controllable. I'm sure it will become a reality. Just a matter of time. Question is how much time. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, that was one of the questions, and I don't know if you can answer directly, uh, Lior, but um, someone was asking, what's the actual manufacturing cost of per, per kilowatt hour for storage these days? I, I don't know if you can answer that directly, but is it going up, down? What's the trend on, on actual battery manufacturing? So, again, everything now is uh, Corona affected, and when... And, 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 Corona is not a time to gouge prices because there's so many changes which are sometimes even contradicting trends. You know, on one hand, logistics have become more more expensive. Manufacturing has become more complicated and more hard to do. On the on the other hand, there's less demand these days in the market, which opens up uh, uh, some of the vendors to reduce prices. So ignoring Corona, the trend is very clear. The trend of storage is, uh, is, uh, is down and, and, and down uh, very strong. Uh, this is why um, you know, a, a lot of people are asking me regarding battery technologies, lithium-ion battery technologies or other uh, type of uh, technologies like uh, uh, flow batteries. Uh, here, um, like in PV modules, if you if you remember years ago, uh, 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 lots of lots of different PV module technologies, and basically crystalline silicon won because it was by far the highest volume. Uh, here, uh, lithium-ion and especially NMC lithium-ion is the only viable solution for electric vehicles. It's the only viable solution for mobile phones in terms of volume, energy density, and weight. Uh, and because of these two very high volume drivers, NMC is costing down so much faster than anything else uh, uh, that I believe that uh, it will win. And, and, and we just need, again, ignoring uh, Corona, 
We just need to see the price trend to a double-digit dollar per per kilowatt hour manufactured battery. It's not there yet, but it's heading there, and it's heading there quite fast. So under a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour is. is what we are not there yet. Uh, I don't think we'll, we will be there uh, very, very soon, but uh, it is a foreseeable future. In, I'm not a profit, but uh, I would say uh, 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 two years, three years. And I have one real quick one that's, that you're going to like, Lior. Um, Fernando Greenham asks, uh, what is the best battery storage system available on the market for smart energy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do you want the biased answer or the objective answer? <laughs> well, considering the objective, that <laughs> the objective answer is uh, no, come on. There's yeah. only one answer I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's it does depend on what you want out of your system, and you you have to do your research. What's available in your area? Um, yeah, it's a difficult. Yeah, and, and I mean, to help that a little bit, the, it, at Solar Power International in Salt Lake this year, 2019, we saw more Solar Plus storage solutions on offer than ever before. Uh, and there's probably a half a dozen, somewhere between a half a dozen and a dozen uh, solid solutions to choose from, and they're all coming to market on their own timelines. But I mean, they're out there. It's the and they're and and they do have kind of different tenants and different value propositions to some degree. So there, there's a there's a bit of a bit of education out there to do to dig into it and find out what's right for you. I can tell you uh, without uh, disclosing the details that uh, probably next week we're gonna show something to the market that I think is gonna be very impressive. All so right. hang on, don't buy don't buy this week. <laughs> good information. <laughs> yep. and I think we're going to um, be wrapping up here. I have a few more questions real quick. Um, is supply projected to keep up with demand? Um, there's been a number of large RFPs recently, Pacific Corp, Dominion, TVA, um, et cetera. Uh, do you have any um, supply shortages? I mean, ignoring COVID is... is... No, uh, so... so uh, uh, um... First of all, the short answer is no. Uh, the, 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 the longer answer is that um, COVID has completely disrupted every supply chain that I'm guessing many companies had, including solar edges. Uh, but we've been able, since we have factories in uh, Europe and in China and in Vietnam, we've been shifting peaks of capacity from one uh, from one uh, place to the other as uh, this plague spread around the, the world. Um, and I don't, uh, and, and, and we've been able to pretty much supply everything that uh, we needed to supply in Q1, which was a record quarter for the industry and for us. And, and we don't see uh, supply shortages uh, for us. And I'm guessing that most of the industry is same. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I think I think a lot of companies were ramping up capacity, manufacturing capacity well ahead of, of this happening. And so there was excess capacity in the system that can be ramped into versus saying that every company was operating at its max capacity before beforehand. Some companies, as Lear mentioned, can can shift cell production, for example, between the different products that would use them. And you know, when we if we broadly bucket into consumer electronics, electric vehicles and stationary, there may be some flexibility to focus on wherever margin growth is is prevents the presents the best opportunity. The last thing is a lot of those really large projects are still slated for for um, delivery in 2021, 22, 23. So that does allow some flex in timing. Um, that said, in the short term, I mean, we've absolutely seen some invocations of force majeure clauses in contracts for uh, delivery delays in, yeah, that were more imminent. A lot of those were, were simply just based on ships were not allowed to dock and, and bring, bring inventory on land or something like that. Um, but they were more on the order of months than, than, than multiple years. So, um, but we have, but that was interesting is that those, those types of terms and conditions in contracts have become now very much front of mind for anything that hasn't been signed yet. It's th those potential issues need to be really buttoned up by, uh, by the, by the lawyers, I think is, is probably the easiest way to say it. 
Thanks for that, Brian. And, uh, you know, Jay and I were just saying it'd be nice to uh, wrap this up with a final word from both of you. Uh, how about starting with you, uh, uh, Brian? Do you have anything you'd like to share with the attendees or the general solar industry or the community at large? Absolutely. Uh, first off, thanks, thanks for having me. Um, I, I, you know, as, as you heard from, from me in the beginning, I'm pretty optimistic on the sector, both at the large scale and at the small scale. Um, certainly, there's always winners and losers, but generally, I, I still think the fundamentals of the industry for, for solar and storage are positive. I don't think those have changed as a result of COVID. I think, if any, a couple of them, a uh, couple fundamental drivers have, have increased um, in terms of driving, in terms of positive impact on, on where the market will go for, the, for these technologies. Um, I guess to leave the audience with something, I think something that we'll see more of, especially for standalone large-scale utility um, energy storage projects and, and maybe some on the small scale side is that often, um, especially when it's paired with renewables, um, storage just assume, is assumed to be a green, lower, lower emitting technology. And in many cases it is, but it, it really comes down to how it's operated. And frankly, we expect to see some um, storage projects measured in the future, not just on the revenue that they can produce in their IRR or NPV, but, but also on their incremental emission impact on the system through grid charge, or also relative to what the PV system, um, if they were paired with PV or wind, what that would have done. And I think that's an interesting and important metric for us to consider. It's not just about putting more and more renewable energy on the system, it's, it's also about reducing emissions, right? And it's not always a one-to-one -one basis, especially in those high, those markets that happen to have the high renewable penetration already, that curve, um, you know, being one example. So that's something that I see coming down and uh, hope to be a part of it. And thank, thank you everyone for joining. Very good, thank you, Brian. Really appreciate that. Great insights today you shared. Uh, how about you, Lior? What do you think? Any uh, final words for our listeners? Uh, so um, interesting times. And um, I think that uh, exactly as Brian said, solar is here to stay and solar and storage as part of it uh, uh, is the new grid. Uh, and, and, and I sit in a unique place because I do see pretty much every market around the world, from Brazil to Australia to, to Europe to the US. And I can tell you that a lot of the trends that we see starting in the US are already very firm re re reality in other places of the world. And we see it over and over and, and over. So I don't think that uh, there's anything that can stop the, the solar train. Uh, and I don't think that uh, um, and anything that happened in the last few months just reaffirms the need for uh, renewable energy, distributed energy, resiliency in the grid due to distribution and storage. Uh, so the future is very bright. And we just need to get over the, the, the belly of the duck, uh, the belly of the Corona duck. I like it. I like it. Thanks for that, Leo. Really great insights from you, as always. Uh, Jason, you have anything you want to throw out here? Oh, I just want to remind everybody, uh, you can catch us every week at www.solar-coaster.com is where we do our radio program and podcast. Um, and we hope to see everybody at SPI 2020, uh, assuming that it goes forward if it, and we can travel. <laughs> um, Anaheim, September 14th through 17th, North America Smart Energy Week uh, and, and uh, Solar Power International 2020. Very much looking forward to it. Um, want to... Uh, give a big thanks to everybody for participating this week. And especially uh, NorCal Control's uh, sponsor of the program through uh, and all the great guys at SETS, uh, Tim and Greg and everyone else there. Thank you very much for uh, putting this together. We had a great time and I uh, hope it was useful and helpful to, uh, to all the great you know solar industry people out there. You guys are great peeps. We, uh, we, we, we hope you take good care of your be safe. Uh, we're just going to get over this bump soon and, and uh, looks like the industry is going to be uh, doing great in the future. So aloha and thank you very much for attending.